There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Oh, hey, everyone. Episode 96, coming right at you from Bozeman, Montana. It's me and Phil the Engineer here in early January. We're going to wind down the best of THC. So thank you. I know there's a lot of people out there. I'll just be honest that when you see a best of show, you just don't listen. I do that sometimes. But I hope you listen to these last three and hope you're listening to this one right now. Because uh, we want to celebrate a little bit of what we've done in the last couple of years. And, we, and, and while we're doing that, we're sitting back here and planning for 2020. All the cool st- things we want to bring you all the great guests, all the good topics. So hopefully we'll live up to your expectations in 2020. And as I said, I'm having a child, so kind of busy with that. We'll be back and better than ever very soon. But before we get to the show today, we got to talk to you about the Meat Eater Off the Air live tour. Join Steve Rinella, Giannis Patelis, Ryan Callahan, and friends for an evening you won't see or hear anywhere else. And that just means it's not going to be recorded. There's nowhere else you can get this entertainment than in the theater with these boys in 11 cities coming this year. San Francisco, Portland, Phoenix, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Boston, Detroit, Minneapolis, Chicago, D.C., Pittsburgh. Whew! 11 cities all together. So if you want to get tickets, they go on sale Friday, January 17th. But they are available exclusively to the Mediator community beginning Tuesday, January 14th at 10 a.m. Use the promo code MUGS wherever you're buying your tickets, and you'll get them. There's also one more thing to know. There's exclusive meet and greet signing opportunities available for VIP ticket holders. There's only 65 tickets per show, so get on that ASAP if you want to meet the crew and greet the crew. We're excited for that as a company, and we'll see you on the road. Now, episode 96. I guess I grew up on an older road. A pedal to the metal, always did what I told. 
until I found out that my brand new clothes I came second hand from the rich kids next door And I grew up fast, I guess I grew up mean There's a thousand things inside my head I wish I ain't seen And now I just wander through a real bad dream Or feeling like I'm coming apart at the seams But thank you Jack Daniels Oh, oh number seven Hey everybody Episode 96 coming at you. We are here and we're ready for the last best of THC, Phil. I'm going to ask you just one more time. How are you feeling, buddy? I'm I'm doing great. Got a cup of coffee. Recording a couple podcasts today, which is my job. Yeah. Um, so, you know. Doing your job is what you're doing saying. Nine to five. Drinking I get coffee, up, I doing do my, my job, job, going home. Well, listen, I've been thinking a lot lately about... Uh, we've been thinking about 2020 and what we're going to do, uh, how we're going to be different. You know, as a, as a podcast, when you have to, when your, uh, your job is to do something every week, I personally stress a lot about, uh, what, what we're going to do, how we're going to be different, how we're going to be better, how we're going to push forward. And this is a great time for the show to do that. So before we get any further into, to what we're going to do today, uh, I want to tell you guys right into THC at the mediator.com. Uh, this would be a nice time just to tell us how you're feeling, how you're feeling about what we've done thus far, how you're feeling about 2020, what's the most pressing issue in your world, what do you want to see us cover, who do you want us to talk to, where do you want us to go, uh, because it's an open book right now, and this is the time to push this show in the direction you want it to go. A lot of you guys write in, a lot of you guys leave reviews, negative, positive, whatever, we appreciate all of them, or most all of them, Phil, we appreciate most all of them. I appreciate all of them. Yeah. Phil likes all of them. Yeah. They all make him laugh. Um, but but it is important to us to get the feedback from you. So, little blocking and tackling here, thctmediator.com. Write in. Let us know what you're thinking, what you're burning on in 2020. We will do our best to tackle all of that uh, here on the show. So, we've been already been talking about this the last couple episodes. I am expecting a child. Now, that I thought maybe the child would have come by now into the world, Phil, but uh, the child has not. So... We still have a couple of days, we think, before the event. So I wanted to just briefly touch on fatherhood, and I think um, what we're going to do when my son is born, my dad is going to be in town, we might come in this room right after he's born and just reflect a little bit more in depth on fatherhood, because I think it's an important part of my life. Phil, it's an important part of your life. Fatherhood or motherhood or just being a parent is an important part of all of our lives. And so those of you that have children... Uh, and those of you that want to have children, we got folks like Ryan Callahan, who just is essentially uh, a single man for life, as he's told us. And I'm happy for him. The man's living the dream a lot of ways. But being a, being a parent's a lot of things. And I think for me, as I prepare to have my second child, it, it, it changes a lot of the ways that I think about my son, James, my wife, my family, uh, like where you find your joy here's i'm gonna go i'm gonna get deep on you phil you ready for this i I love it when you do this yeah it's like uh my dr phil moment like where do you find your joy like i've 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 traveled around i've done a lot of amazing things in my life spent a lot of time um doing things that not a lot of people get to do and i i find joy in those places outside i mean i've been uh, to some of the, the craziest mountain ranges in the world i've hunted some of the weirdest and wildest animals you'd ever see at the ends of the earth and um not to be too melodramatic about where i've been but 
I found joy in those wild places, but the, the coolest thing that I've ever done is find joy just with the people that I love and the people that really matter. And I think fatherhood then for me becomes this singular joy because it doesn't, it doesn't need to be far flung. It doesn't need to be wild and crazy and eventful. It can just be what it, it could be that simple joy in your life. And if you can find um, joy in the craziness that it is being a parent, white diapers and tantrums and all the things that toddlers bring into your life. If you find some joy in all of it, then you can find yeah, that simple pleasures uh, become important for you. And so for me, at the end of the day, fatherhood as I prepare for number two is about putting the best of me into my, into my family, into that part of my life. And it feels pretty good at the end of the day knowing that while it's always a struggle, if you do good at that part, if you do good at that job, if you excel at that, then uh, it's a it's a long-lasting effect on our world. So if you're a parent or if you want to be a parent, it's a good time to be thinking about that. I certainly am right now. You got any parenting philosophies you want to throw out there, Phil? Uh, not really. I haven't. Uh, it's the stuff that I've thought about, but I have never really put into words before. Um, but I think you did a did a pretty good job. It's kind of crazy how world shaking becoming a parent is. It really um, is. You never. Yeah, I used to look around at people that had kids when I didn't have kids. I'm like, well, how are you here right now? Yeah, <laughs> don't you have somewhere else to be? <laughs> how can you be here when that's going on? Uh, and for me, if I was being flat honest, uh, prior to having a, a child, I never really thought it would happen. For me, I just didn't know. I don't know if I didn't know if I earned it or if I deserved it. Um, I didn't know if I would would be good at it. But now that I am in that situation, I very much relish the opportunity to succeed and fail and succeed and fail again at being a parent. And just um, it keeps life interesting. That's for sure. And it's I think what's really important. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that today and. Hopefully, uh, pretty soon, you'll be seeing uh, some little content about the new little guy in my life, and we'll be moving on to 2020. So thanks for sticking with me as we talk a little bit about fatherhood and where I am in life. And now we're going to get to the rest of episode 96. And the reason why I think this is the perfect way to end the best of is because I think in a lot of ways, the three folks you're going to hear from today... Um, are going to have those long-lasting effects on our world and our, the hunting community uh, and all of the things that we love to do, all the pursuits we love to, to take part in. Tr- Colonel Tom Kelly, Jim Posowitz, Valerius Geist, all three of those, those guys have had uh, indelible stamps on hunting and the outdoors and nature and all those things. Um, first up, you're going to hear Jim Posowitz, uh, Jim is the author of Beyond Fair Chase. That's a book. If you haven't read it, go read it. And if you don't know anything about Jim Posowitz, please stick around and go listen to the After we finish this episode, go listen to his full episode of The Hunting Collective. He's a legend. He's getting up there in years. Uh, but what he's done for uh, hunting and how we think about it, how we reason it, how we value it, has been immeasurable. Uh, so I, I greatly respect that man. He actually shed a few tears in that episode um, when telling a story about generational hunting. And Valerius Geist uh, shed some tears when talking about uh, a moose, <laughs> a pet moose. And Colonel Tom Kelly shed some tears when talking about his late wife. 
And so beyond Posowitz, we have, like, like I just said, Colonel Tom Kelly, the Turkey Hunting's Poet Laureate, a Southern genteel colonel that has so many things to say. It could spin, spin a yarn, as they say, as well. And then we're going to end it with the legendary author of the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. His name is Valerius Geist, Dr. Valerius Geist. He came in here and absolutely wowed us. The jaw-dropping person, um, full of energy, as, as is Colonel Kelly, as is Jim Posowitz. They wouldn't be to where they are in life uh, without that just singular energy that they have. So I want you to enjoy these three people. Know that they have lived they're getting up there in years. They've lived long, productive lives. And if I were to make a goal for for folks to emulate these three gentlemen, would be right up there, uh, both professionally, personally, and on and on. So without further ado, enjoy Mr. Jim Poslitz. I guess I grew up on an older road, a pedal to the metal. Take us through... Why ethics for you? Why, after all this time spent in the hunting community, the conservation community, why ethics was important to you? Why, why fair chase was something that um, was a pillar in your life and why you felt the need to address it at that point? Okay. I'm leaving fishing game in the, in the 80s, late 80s. I'm wrapping things up kind of. That's when I had gone back to Washington, D.C. That's when we were killing every buffalo that set foot outside of Yellowstone National Park. And that's when hunting was being vilified uh, coast to coast. Yeah, and this is kind of like the, the pinnacle of the hunting participation at, at some level in yeah. the mid-80s when it was really... And <clears throat> I guess I was aware of the conservation side of what the hunters were sponsoring. And that story was not being told by anybody. And so I came back and we started the Governor's Symposium Series on the North American Hunting Heritage under uh, Stan Stevens' first term as governor. And we started talking about, you know, what's wrong with us and what's right about us as hunters. And we held seven national conferences uh, in the process. And, of course, that uh, when you got to start inviting speakers and become a speaker and stuff, you have to start doing some studying. <laughs> <laughs> do you and, remember, like, it strikes me, though, do you remember when you say that you want to, what's right with us and what's wrong with us? Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's a pretty heavy statement for me. Do you, do you remember back in time to why? that you, you wanted to explore explore those things, like particularly what's wrong with us? Well, what's wrong with us was, uh, I guess, the consummate thing was how we were treating the buffalo yeah. coming out of Yellowstone Park. Everyone setting foot in Montana was to be shot. And that was so alien to the conservation ethic that had restored wild, uh, abundance of wildlife um, clear across the state of Montana that I stumbled into, you know, in the middle of a deer recovery boom of the 1950s. Yes. I wasn't a great hunter. I mean, there were, deer were everywhere. <laughs> 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 and to start adding, you know, things up and and just why a person is even inclined to go out in pursuit of 
whether it was a jack or a cottontail rabbit or a pheasant or a rough grouse. I mean, that was my total bag of as a hunter before yeah. coming to Montana was a couple of cottontail rabbits in an apple orchard because the <laughs> orchard guy didn't like a nipping on the bases of his trees. <clears throat> they were probably pretty good tasting rabbits. Exactly. Um, yeah, although my mother was quite puzzled <laughs> what to do with it. <laughs> did you did you ever did you find yourself to be unique in that in, in the thoughts you were having around um, the examining oh, the why or the ethics? No, of the... and uh, here I I tend to. Um, maybe make some stuff up because the, the competition for the hunter's attention had turned to, you know, did you get your limit? How big was your buck? And it's, it still persists. I'm glad I never measured any of my animals. Yes, yes. Just won't do it because it's just degrading. And then you realize, whoa, there's more here to that. And... Uh, I had a consummate experience, you know, after, I mean, after all the stuff for just 25 years with the Cinnabar Foundation, funding conservation, environmental protection, wildlife restoration, and then 15 years with Orion. <clears throat> and what that adds to the personal experience becomes over, overwhelming. Yeah. And a couple of seasons ago, I'm stumbling up into, uh, we used to live eight miles south of town, and just out the back door, did lots and lots of hunting. But I go to an old familiar place in the dark, and I sit there because Gail's coming up the other side. Your wife. Yeah, yeah and she's liable to you know, start some elk out. So I'm sitting in one of the passes where they sometimes go. <laughs> <laughs> As the hunters tend, as the hunter is known to do. So I'm sitting there in the pre-dawn, and I'm looking down the trail. I came in. What looks like a father and two sons come walking up the trail, and I'm just sitting there. <clears throat> Excuse me. The father sees me and he halts the boys, and they're like poster children out of Hunter Education magazine. I mean, they're control of their weapons, undivided attention, standing there quietly in the background, and the father tiptoes up to this old guy sitting in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> and the father says, we don't want to get ahead of you. He whispers it to me. And I look, and I'm thinking, here I'm sitting on the national forest, public lands, in pursuit of a restored wildlife population, that's available to anybody. And the first three guys I meet want to defer to me. Yeah. And I said to the, you know, and I'm thinking of Theodore Roosevelt uh, talking about the generations within the womb of time is what he called this. Well, there were three generations right there. This old guy, me, the father and two sons, what I took to be two sons. Yeah. And I look at, the situation, and I say back to the father, I think I know what I see here, and I want you ahead of me. And then he says, the youngest boy can shoot a cow if he sees one. And I give him a smile and a thumbs up, and the kid's face lights up in the dark with excitement of that 
moment and in his anticipation his excitement and just again i lean on roosevelt we do these things uh, for the economic well-being of the people but there is more they also add to the beauty of living and therefore the joy of life and there i was looking at the joy of life shining in the dark yeah and I thought, holy mackerel. Well, and all you've experienced in your life. Yeah, and, and then they walked up, the, and then, the, I was, you know, they walked ahead. I sat there and I bawled. I was so emotionally moved by how this all fits. Yeah. And when you see, and this, these people didn't know any of this stuff, I don't think. I mean, maybe they did, but probably not. But... The two boys I know got my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that your emotion there is built in what you've seen and what in some ways you've shepherded in your life. Experienced, you know, you know and uh, to say that buck is a big accomplishment, it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're talking about a big part of, and I think, one thing that you've done in your career and that I hope to do, and I'm sure Sam hopes as well, is to is to carry that torch. It, it is to understand the history of what came before us and how miraculous the time that we've described in this podcast was for America and how miraculous that it has lasted for these decades and, and throughout your life mm -hmm. is even more miraculous. That it's a it's amazing to have thought about, you know, the that you were one year old when when, you know, the concert the early conservationists were coming together yeah. to decide the future, and here we are in the future, and there was two boys there that learned something that they that they to them was likely an aid to their family and to the way mm -hmm. of life, which wasn't always that way. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't uh, the royal hunting party. <laughs> it was not. <clears throat> These were the real Americans, and it's democratic in yeah. its nature. And what do you, I think this spins well into, I think ethics and hunting. Oh, I forgot to answer yeah, your we'll, question. We'll get there. <clears throat> okay, we got plenty of time. Take <clears throat> have a drink. Um, <laughs> we'll all have a drink. In. In um, elevating the conversation of ethics, as you did, um, there was, uh, and in your book, there's a, the level of caring about, to me, what struck me was the level of caring about the, the community of people that you were involved in, but the level of caring about right and wrong for them and, and that discussion, mm. you know, and as you wrote that book, you know, what's your ultimate goal? Like, would you remember what's in your head is I'm going to achieve something from this writing or is it just the conversation that you had within it? Well, there's, you know, other things going on in a person's life. And in the context of this subject, I had been going to the shot show. Uh, <laughs> you know, so many parallels here. Yeah. We're getting ready to go to the shot show, right? And and here is the commercial extreme, and they're just peddling their stuff, and nothing matters uh, other than to sell the commodity. And the fact that there is an animal involved, going to get shot out here, does not ever cross that border. 
and and that's the tragedy of the industry not seeing a more you know a more powerful uh, reality sure. than just the antler or the quantity or the locker full of of dead fish or whatever it is but all they're doing is promoting the commerce of it and of course the commerce is what drove it to its knees to begin with sure uh, the buffalo hide and other just the meat markets and here we're going right back with yeah. the this huge engine. Yeah, boy, isn't that a powerful notion? Like, yeah, would we so, allow that to, to reverse? Right, and so we're beyond fair chase to try to find another path. Came from the publisher of uh, Falcon Press at the time, tossed a little copy of a book called uh, "The Ethics of or the Style of Writing" by Strunk and White. Mm-hmm. Elements of Style, or I forget the exact title of it now, but it was a little tiny paperback book about writing. And he said, I want you to write a book just like this on the ethics of hunting. And I said, okay, I never written anything. Well, I've written articles, but never a book. So I sat down and I just wrote Beyond Fair Chase. Uh, one of the things I did write was it wasn't a lister of thou shalts and thou shalt nots because they're everywhere and they're nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, that is true. It's the tricky thing about ethics. Yeah, and so you, I, I spun five stories uh, into the book on, on relationships between the hunter and the hunted, including that buck there and, yeah, and, I remember. and another set in my downstairs from the next year in the same same hillside basically but at any rate uh, I drafted it and uh, he, there was very little editorial stuff oh and he wanted to call the little brown book on hunting, <laughs> because cool. Chairman Mao had just come out with the, the little, little red, red book, little, red, <laughs> little brown book on hunting. That would have lasted as long, but beyond, beyond fair chase, is a right, little more right, snappier. Yeah. Well, anyhow, what I did was I called, uh, offered to buy a beer for about four or five members of the Rod and Gun Club that I was a member of told them the dilemma that I needed a better title. <laughs> and at the price of a couple of beers, I got one of the guys, uh, Mike Trevor, yeah. uh, said, how about Beyond Fair Chase? And that rang the bell. And so that's where the title came from. Yeah. And then I wrote the book, and it has five stories. Uh, uh, one about the wounded bull, which is one that comes back to me most often. Uh, some one personal story about when my son passes up an elk because he wants his father to confirm that everything is good, <laughs> <laughs> as we all do. Yeah, and then in the, the next season he, get, he gets an elk there, and yeah. I thought, wow, it's all it's all fits. Yeah, but at any rate. Uh, there's a ton of stories about stories coming back to me. Yeah. But uh, that will take a, a <laughs> while. Long time. But at any rate, 
that's where Beyond Fair Chase came from. And then uh, the breakthrough there was I had been meeting with the uh, with the International Association of Hunter Education Educators. Mm-hmm. They were having an annual convention in Des Moines, Iowa. And so I wrote the guy and I said, look, I've got this book and I'd like to tell about it at your convention. I'll, I'll take any place on your program that you might be able to fit it in. Uh, if somebody cancels or whatever, and uh, he agrees, he said, okay, come on. And uh, he gives me the award banquet speaking spot. This point, you probably studied deal. up, yeah. And my wife, Gail, goes, she's on contract here with Falcon Press at the time mm-hmm. to promote the book, sell it. And one of the guys from his staff uh, down, down there at Falcon Press goes along. We go to Des Moines. I write a speech. And we get into the banquet room, and Gail and Chris, the other guy from Falcon, they set up a table to take orders on the outside of the banquet room. This is the Hotel Fort Des Moines. And I get in here, and here's all these oak walls and beautifully kept historic place. And it occurs to me, because I knew a little bit about conservation history, that Aldo Leopold, Iowan, and Ding Darling, Iowan, Ding was the first president of the National Wildlife Federation, spoke in that same room. So I threw away my text. (laughs) (laughs) And I talked about the echoes of their words that are held in these walls. And when that was over, they swamped our pre-order table, and Gail and Chris so pre-sold a hundred thousand copies of Beyond wow. Fair Chase. Wow! Wow! Oh! And what did you tell us before? Seven hundred? How many? How many thousands? About seven hundred now. Unbelievable! Seven hundred thousand copies. Yeah. And Sam, what like when you first read it? Uh, what would you think? Like what? Like what was your reaction to what you'd read? What what Mister what Jim had put together? Well, I think. I think it started getting distributed to hunter education courses probably right after I was, I went through that. So I didn't read it until just a couple of years ago when Lantani gave me a copy. But was that the one you started with the story of like killing a sparrow? Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember that. I mean, I definitely resonated with it immediately having grown up you know, with a BB gun in hand, <laughs> killing all, all manner. Yeah, I forgot that you yeah. mentioned it now, but yes. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. was, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, p- please, please go ahead. Bill Schneider wanted to call it the little brown book on hunting. <laughs> I wanted to call it the sparrow and the mammoth hunter. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good title. That's that's pretty good. That I sounds feel like it. a t-shirt. Yeah, it yeah. turned out to be beyond fair chase. <laughs> <laughs> we like it, but yeah, this this book becomes a seminal project. And and I read it. I think about five years ago when I first. I remember when I first started to. I had been a professional in the industry for for years, and when I first started to examine my own actions, and I remember it was around a photo I took of an elk, one of the first elk I ever killed was in the Madison Valley, 
and we took this photo. We took we stood we the hunt lasted an hour, and the photo shot photo shoot lasted three hours mm-hmm. with this different positions of this elk and. And I remember no one taking a photo of us cutting it up or no one taking a photo of of uh, of me packing the antlers out. No one taking a photo of me doing anything other than standing around with this dead elk. It's the first elk I've killed. Mm-hmm. And I just remember at some point in that, in that um, hunt just thinking, I'm not sure what's going on here. Like, I'm not sure why I'm doing this. Because at that point, I was a was in an, edit, an editor for a hunting magazine and, and companies would invite me out as you spoke about. It hits home to me when you spoke about like how we've turned hunting into a commodity. We use it to sell things, which which changes a lot of the motivation for some hunters in the industry. And I think that was part of what I was struggling with there. It's like, why am I really doing this? Yeah, I'm eating it. Yeah, there's conservation, but what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, and that's that's kind of what I was struggling to get at, Ben. And, and something I think it real the the, you know, the, ultimate revelation it provided me was it it's it's sometimes not enough just to follow the the letter of the law just what it doing what is legal does not completely satisfy our responsibility to this resource and growing up i for the most part followed the the law there are definitely some <laughs> um waverings there but uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I and I I feel like by the time I'd read it, I'd I'd come to agree that game laws were there for a good reason, and that I didn't like to give cops a reason to mess with me. But it really it really um, cemented, I think, ideas that I'd already gathered from from other works and things that. And I think that's the. This is the great beauty of that title is you need to go beyond what's required of mm-hmm. you as a hunter, and 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 make sure that your actions are defensible and beneficial to the resource, and that you do you do as much for that animal and the, those populations and those resources. as much or more than than they do for you and that you you have that that responsibility that it's a that's a a give and a take yeah do you think about um your effort to and then just your own personal feelings on defining the relationship between the hunter and the hunted like how we feel about animals you know how much how much time have you put into that in your own personal hunting well, it grows with time. I mean, the first thing you wanted to, that I wanted to do with with that borrowed gun was to find a dead deer after I was sent around that direction. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, yeah. Well. Yeah, and then, of course, it became take care of it. That was kind of an autopilot. That's why I was there. Uh, but uh, the more experiences you have and uh, and the more you learn about where you're hunting and and the history of the place you know uh the rocky mountain front of course is a classic but that first ranger up there ehlers coke he spent 30 days in 1905 mm. for services first year and 30 days in 1906 and he described what's the Bob Marshall Great Bear Complex now, but it was, he described them by drainage. And 
in 30 days of hunting each year, he saw, he said, I, I never saw or got a shot at a single game animal except one mountain goat. I mean, you get wow. trampled back there in 60 days now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would. <clears throat> but that was would. the depth to which the slaughter had gone. And uh, he rides in, and, and he was a conservation-oriented guy, and uh, uh, the front has got a very rich history yes, of, of people popping up along the way. Sometimes they're in the agency. They made it a wilderness before there was a Wilderness Act. And the uh, Sun River Game Preserve was created, and I think it was only one dissenting vote in the Montana State Legislature when that was passed through, start protecting this stuff. And that was from the grassroots uh, rancher from Shoto. Yeah. Or maybe it was a businessman, I think, from Shoto, but that uh, we had to do better. Yeah, had to do better. And you feel like we've done better? Well, yeah, and certainly we've done better. And, of course, now the problem is, again, as wildlife became more abundant and our people are more interested in hunting and uh, commerce returns. And then when you've got the critter living private and public, both, you have those conflicts and those will be issues that uh, your generation is going to have to come to uh, a management scheme that is good for the good for the critter. Yeah, that was that was a, a question I've been I've I've had sitting on my my list for a while. That well, I mean you're moving us in that direction anyway. The you know the fair chase ethic arose around Leopold and Roosevelt and and all of those, and by and large we have recovered a lot of our wildlife in this country. I was just curious to know. You know, from 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 you, how do you approach some of these modern um, issues of of fair chase and hunting ethics? Where, where where do you start when people are are talking about I, I don't know, like I, I feel like bear baiting is 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 very much in the modern debate. Some people mm -hmm. would say that by putting out bait, you're creating an unnatural situation to to chase an animal that may not be fair. Other people would respond that by hunting bears over bait, you have the opportunity to properly sex the bear, make sure you're taking a boar, preferably a mature boar, and you'll have an opportunity to take a good, clean standing shot. Um, and, and this is something I struggle with. And I'm just curious, like, you know, having being the guy who wrote the book on fair chase, <laughs> what's, what's square, what's square one? What, where, where do you start when trying to parse these difficult discussions? Well, you, you kind of start at midpoint on the spectrum and that that midpoint is where you accept responsibility, both for the taking of that animal that is equal to your responsibility to see to it that that animal was even there. In other words, if you, you've got to realize that you're just not a freeloader. And, and, and I think there's kind of a middle point in the hunter's career where when I borrowed that gun and shot that doe, I hadn't 
really, I didn't even know why she was out there right. or why the land was public. And as that awareness grows, and, and you don't have to have that all for your first start out of the chute. But you, when you when you decide you're going to be a hunter, I think it would really be well. It's I know it's to your advantage to start viewing it in its the full context of why this could even happen, and uh, that enriches it. it certainly, you know, does. my best hunt was when I ran into those three guys south of town. Sure, <clears throat> I didn't even fire a shot or tag anything or. I didn't have to drag anything out, <laughs> but I had an experience that added to the beauty of living and the joy of life, as Roosevelt called it. I guess I grew up on an older road. All right, that's Jim Posowitz for you, folks. Really enjoyed that conversation. If you go back and search that episode, you can find the entire thing. It's a couple, a couple more hours in there that you didn't get to hear, but. The story about that Jim tells about running into the father and son on the trail and seeing the passage of time in that interaction and seeing kind of what he has meant to hunting in the eyes of that father and that son has been powerful. He even shed a little tear there during that conversation. So uh, I really just want you to make sure that if you haven't read his work, if you haven't read Beyond Fair Chase, go and do that. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. 
It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. Speaking of a book you need to read, we got the next guy coming up here, Colonel Tom Kelly. It's going to be, I don't know if it's my favorite podcast, but he's definitely my favorite guest of all time. Colonel Tom Kelly's a legend. I read his book, The 10th Legion, before every hunting season, every spring turkey season. So I'm going to make Phil read it this spring turkey season when you go on your first hunt. Oh, I'll homework. Read The 10th Legion. Okay. Yeah, it's good homework. You'll like it. Um, just a little, a little brief bit on what Tom Kelly means to me. Um, people call him Turkey Hunting's Poet Laureate, and for good reason. This is a man that can... Um, strike at the heart of what a turkey hunter is and who a turkey hunter is and why they do what they do. And that's as interesting to me as anything. And when I traveled to um, Bethesda, Maryland to meet with the guy, it struck me that this part of his life, you know, it's 93 years old. He lives on the 11th floor of a high rise in Bethesda, Maryland. Outside of his apartment, strip malls, chain restaurants, traffic jams, all the stuff that a hunter doesn't like. And his life there seemed, you know, small. A little bit hollow. Uh, as a man who's, whose years have, have kind of watched go by, his wife, his beloved wife, has passed away two years prior. Tom moved from his longtime Alabama home up to Maryland, where I met him. And so there was a little bit of sadness in the room for a man that has done so much in his life. Uh, a man that has done so many things will impact all of us. But there's also a beauty in it because there's a quote that that Tom has in his in his book, The Tenth Legion. He says, you have to pay for every turkey you kill, and the coin you use to pay for them is time. And so at this point, when we drop into this conversation with Tom, he has paid he has paid time. He's paid with time. He's used all his coins. It, it was obvious to me during this conversation that he's he's reaching the end of his days, the end of his days outside, the end of his days where he can can be free, and now he'll he'll soon probably be in a nursing home. He'll soon probably be cared for by a nurse and and only be able to leave the room when someone helps him do it. And so, but he still has this patience, this determination. You know, he moves like he moved like smoke almost to the apartment. I remember writing that. After I met him, he's so deliberate in the way that he moved because uh, it takes a lot of work to get across the room when you're 93. And so I have a lot of feelings and thoughts looking back on this conversation, but you can get just as much about the man by listening to him speak. So enjoy this little bit with Colonel Tom Kelly. I guess Mr. I'm Kelly, how are you today? Colonel fine, Kelly. Fine, thank you. Thanks for thanks for joining me and having me into your home here in in, it. in Bethesda. Uh, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about, um, but the first one is why do you think turkeys was the thing that you became famous for writing about? The thing that I think really triggered me into it was my wife. Uh, we were going someplace, and she said something to me, and she said, "You know, I hear you telling all these." stories to people about this you might ought to write that down and maybe somebody would want to would want to listen to it 
and I had no idea about doing anything like that. And I said, all right, I'll try that. And I had been, at that time, I had been writing. I had been selling an occasional story to Field and Stream and Outdoor Life, and I used to sell some to uh, the, the one, Sports Illustrated. I used to sell them Sports oh, Illustrated there. before they fell out of love with killing things, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I, I did that, and I started doing it. And then that triggered the whole damn thing. That, that triggered. To me, uh, I'm not at all interested in big game hunting. I mean, I, I do not want to. When I hunt something, and this may be cowardice, but when I hunt something, if I lose, I want to lose. I don't want to lose some arms and legs or get my head gnawed off. <laughs> I don't want to hunt elephants where I'll be trampled by the damn elephant if I, if I do something wrong. Yeah, I'm a hunter, not a sufferer. <laughs> And and that really is what triggered the whole thing on anything else. And and then once it started, uh, the first book I did was Tenth Legion. And Tenth Legion is uh, oh Jesus, Tenth Legion must be in its. You I don't know. I don't know how many editions. I I just don't know. I think it's twenty some. Some twenty some. At least some. twenty yeah. some. Nineteen seventy three. Yeah. When that yeah, book yeah, came out. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, that triggered it. And then, and then when that triggered it, and then in hunting, you just meet a lot of nice folks. Yeah, you really do. You meet a lot of. I nice agree. Folks. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, because I think the quite what people love about that book, what I love about that book is the the way you articulated the motivation of the turkey hunter, our our relationship with the turkey. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. our interactions with yeah, the turkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if if somebody if somebody would go, I don't know, I don't have any goddamn idea how many turkeys I've killed. <laughs> I mean, I've been hunting them since nineteen thirty eight. All right, and 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 uh, uh, and when I begin to kill turkeys fairly regularly, I wish to God I had kept a a, a, a journal. Yeah, I mean, if it was no more than hunted here and hunted there and hunted this and did this and did that and did the other thing, but. Okay, so if I've been hunting turkeys for 50 years, well, more than that now. More than that now. Say almost 70 years. 70 years. If I've been hunting turkeys for 70 years, and, and if I've killed four or five turkeys a year, that's whatever, four or five times 70 is, 3,500, something like 300, that. Yeah, 350 turkeys like that. 200 something. 350, 400 turkeys in your life if you if we were to round up to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of interactions with one animal. Yeah, and, 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 and the thing about it is I don't care how, how much you've done it and I don't care how, how good you get at it. Every damn year one of them is going to do something to you and you're going to think, how in the hell could I have been that damn dumb? <laughs> it never gets old. Yes. It never, never, ever gets old. You feel? Do you feel that all turkey hunters have have a hubris, have a confidence that you get to a point where you think a bird's going to do something, you think you haven't figured out? Like, why do we continue to re- return to this confidence? Because we don't. Because he 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 will destroy it if you get that much confidence. He's going to break your neck with you. <laughs> uh, it. One of the one of the marvelous things about about doing it. If 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 you told me that I could never kill another turkey, I could still enjoy taking people. 
Because you can take somebody, and a turkey's got one characteristic. He cannot hear a whisper. If you talk like this, you can hear one. And you can sit. When I take somebody hunting, I sit right here behind him. Yeah. Where I can look over his shoulder. That way, if he shoots me with the shotgun, he's got to turn it around and take <laughs> off his boot and pull the trigger with his toe. So and I ain't going to sit there and wait for him to do that. But if, if, if you can, you can, and you can whisper him all the way to the gun. Yeah. You can say, here he comes, here he comes. Let him get behind that tree. Now, don't do anything. And you can talk him all the way up there and do it. And you can have a, if you told me I could never kill another turkey, I've killed enough. I like to eat them. But if you told me if I, I could never kill another turkey, I could get a pile of enjoyment out of taking other people turkey hunting. Now, as long as I'm, as long as I can get about like this, yes, uh, this this can't go on. I mean, you know, I ain't, <laughs> you've, you've moved it along more I'm, than most folks. Well, I've I moved along, but I ain't going to last to 108 or 116. <laughs> uh, so the end is out there, and and just hopefully it'll come quick. What's the, the first time you heard a, a turkey gobble? First time I heard a turkey gobble, I didn't know what it was. My <laughs> My, I had an uncle who worked at the shipyard at Pascagoula, and he had a friend named Kennedy. And the Kennedys had they had three boys. They had a boy younger than me and a boy older than me and a boy uh, who was my age, Pete. And Pete sort of, well, their daddy worked for my uncle. And their daddy lived just north of Pascagoula, Mississippi, and I lived in Mobile, and I had gone over there to visit my uncle. And Pete and I hit it off together, and he started taking me with him. Mm. And that's when, that's the first turkey I heard gobble uh, with Pete, and I thought it was a dog barking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> and he said, no, that's a turkey. And, and that, that triggered it. And from then on out, it's, it's been turkeys, turkeys, turkeys all the way. What about the first time that you made a turkey gobble with your calling abilities? Uh, the first time, well, what, what, I, what, what I fell into the tr- trick of doing, I got one of these, one of these box yelpers. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, and, I'd, and I'd, I'd hear, you'd hear a turkey gobble, and you'd, I'd try to get pretty close. And then, and then, uh, the first time I heard one gobble, I knew what it was. I knew it was him. It, it's a, it's a, you know, when, when you don't know nothing, and when it was, my uncle didn't know the first damn thing about turkey hunting, he'd kill some turkeys on deer drives. You sit out there with your shotgun on deer drives, and when the, when the, when the dogs are running the deer past the standards, I'd, I'd sit there with, on the first gun I had was a single barrel. Yeah. He'd sit there with a single barrel, and I'd have uh, uh, a buckshot in the single barrel, but I'd have a, 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 a number six shot in my hand. And you could trigger the gun when you heard it coming. If it wasn't a deer, if you thought it was a turkey, you, you could trigger the gun and put the other thing in there and shoot him. <laughs> 
Excellent. the kid. Exchange kid's today. Kill anything on his bike. <laughs> Pigeons, yeah. metal locks, whatever it is. You what is see. it about that when you're a kid that you just you feel like You just it? want something in your hand. You yeah. want to say, I've done it. <laughs> you're right. And that's it's universal for all children. That's right. That's I mean, right. You've got grandchildren now. Well, shit, you got those fangs. <laughs> you know, you're a hunter-gatherer. Yeah, <laughs> a gatherer at that age. Yeah, much as yeah, anything. yeah. You hunt them down and kill them. Uh, our fangs ain't much, <laughs> and our claws ain't much. We have shotguns, and our though. teeth ain't much. <laughs> we got shotguns, though. But we got shotguns. Well, I think, man, I got so many questions for you. But I, I, I think it's it's it makes sense to kind of try to get your perspective on where we are as a modern turkey hunter now and where you began. I mean, you have, mm-hmm. you have lived through the age of turkey hunting. And, and before we hit record, we were talking. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we were talking about that I think, and I think it's just as a natural thing, that a lot of people that hunt turkeys today feel, because they're so abundant, that, that it might have always been that way. Mm-hmm. It may have. Ooh. The way it is now might be the way it has been. It was a friend of mine named Jim Andrews. He's dead now, like most of my friends. But Jim Andrews was one of these guys that if you went someplace, Jim Andrews was going to find a damn turkey, and if there was any turkey going to be killed one, Jim Andrews was going to kill it, and he could never explain why. Yeah, You've written about him yeah, in the yeah, past. Yeah, I've read, I've read yeah, many passages yeah, about yeah, where he was buried yeah, and yeah, what direction he might be yeah, traveling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me about him. Uh, Your relationship with him. You've talked about him being, I've read that that he just was a turkey magnet. He was. He was. I said, he couldn't explain it either. He, he couldn't explain it either. His daddy was not a turkey hunter. None of his uncles was a turkey hunter. His brother, his brother Henry was a fighter pilot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and his brother Henry was a great shot, but he was a shitty turkey hunter. <laughs> It, it's just, I know, well, I, I think the principal characteristic is patience. It's a big bird. It's big enough to be, you, you, you create an importance in the bird yourself. Uh, and that's what, that's what pitches it. That's what pitches it. Yeah. Well, and guys like Jim, I mean, you, you've written about this too, like the friendships that we make. Oh, yeah. The yeah. connections we make. Well, then see, Jim and I work together. Yeah. And in fact, as a matter of fact, Jim worked for me. Uh, except when he came to Turkey hunting, then I worked for Jim. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what, is it, what is it about turkey hunting that makes that, like, if, if not makes friendships like that, enhances them and makes them that way? It's, it's to people, uh, well, it, it, it may be like art appreciation. A guy falls in love with painting. And then I don't care who he's talking to. He wants to talk about painting and painters and how they did this or sculpture and sculpted and how yeah. they did that. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, there's all kinds of things. That, that, that horse over there, yeah. that black hole, I did that horse. Yeah. I did this. Uh, there's this crap around here that I did uh, that, that, you know, you, you just, you know, I don't know. You ask me why in the hell would a guy waste his damn time making a fake unicorn when there ain't no such a thing as a real unicorn, and I can't answer the question. <laughs> it just felt like time to make a goddamn unicorn, so I made one. <laughs> That's fantastic. But, yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, as a as a hunter, as someone who, 
appreciates this. You want to surround yourself with people that have equal passion. Too. That's right. That's right. And for That's somebody right. like you, your passion is unequaled. It's hard to find people that yeah. that can that come to it like you. So then yeah. you end up around exceptional folks like Jim Andrews. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk about. I mean, you, you've written about burying him, you know, or being you know where he was buried and, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out kind mm-hmm. of and going to church and trying to figure yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. And the pastor talking about which direction he might have traveled in the afterlife. And you had an experience with some turkeys that you called in. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that experience? Oh, Can you yeah, talk about yeah, that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. His mama, I never will forget when he introduced me to his mama. We, uh, he lived in Camden, which is in North. It's it's uh, it's at the junction with Alabama and the Tom Bigby Rivers up there. And he hunted up around that. And when Jim, when Jim got out of school, he went into cow business and went broke. And and then he had to, he he had to go to work for for market timber for people, and he was just scratching around making a living any damn way he could make a living. And uh, he uh, he uh, but he never he never he never lost. He never got mad at the world because he was, he was he didn't have any money and he had five kids, four 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 girls and a boy, and uh, I still correspond with some of the kids. They, they 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 we still write a little bit back and forth. But he was just he was just one of those guys that everybody likes. Mm-hmm. You meet one every once in a while. There ain't many, but you meet one every once. Jim was just one of those guys. Yes, sir. And I guess I guess turkeys just liked him, so they came to him when they wouldn't go to anybody. Else. You tell a story about when you went turkey hunting after he died, and there was five, I think, five gobblers yeah, that yeah, gobbled yeah, on the yeah, roost yeah, and gobbled yeah, and gobbled yeah, and gobbled, yeah, yeah. and they flew down out of the tree, and there you were with your yeah, call, yeah. And they would gobble at anything. They'd gobble yeah, at a Tweety Bird. Yeah, they had they, one another. Like, they would gobble yeah, at one another. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. would gobble at anything, but they ignored you. And anything like uh, you were, you did not exist. Uh, you know, and it was if 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 uh, it, it was Jim was Jim Andrews probably the best friend I ever had. Yeah, he's probably the best friend I ever had. And you felt that those turkeys gobbling and ignoring uh, you were, you know, were maybe that, that's maybe a, a song that's, for him. That's imagination. That's <laughs> imagination. That's, you wish it was that way, yeah. but you you don't know that. You know? Yeah. You you wish it was his eulogy that way. Yeah, that right. those right. The, yeah, those turkeys yeah. were giving yeah, you one yeah, last yeah. chance to to see which direction he might have traveled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the tenth legion is, I think, the thing that most people. It's the thing that I've re- I read it before every turkey season. I know a lot of the folks that I work with do the same thing, and it's inspired since it was published in 1973. I mean, it's it's inspired many many turkey hunters and i remember and i remember reading so the 10th legion was was published in 1973 and it has inspired me to be a turkey a more a more involved turkey hunter and inspired many people to go and try it i think we we uh and of course the guy that my partner we we there's a new edition coming out yeah there's a new edition coming out and the new book is uh well, the new book is, I have it here, it's called, uh, you're still writing books at 93. Yeah, yeah. It's called Infinite Variety, is that correct? Uh, infinite Variety, yeah. And he says the title comes from 
Shakespeare's play, yeah, Anthony yeah, and Cleopatra. Yeah, I, I, I am probably one of the last few Shakespeare readers. <laughs> I area. read a lot of Shakespeare. Especially in the turkey hunting community. Yeah, yeah. Age cannot wither her, nor no custom cut, no stale. stale. Her infinite His variety. Infinite variety. Yeah. Every time you go out there, he's going to teach you something. Every time you go out there, he's going to outsmart you in some fresh way you never thought of. And it's, it's never going to get old. It's magical. Magic. It's magic. Absolute magic. When you write the, when you write, I have some quotes here from, from the 10th Legion, not that you need, need me to quote it, but when you, you've inspired a lot of people, people call you the poet laureate of turkey hunting. You like that title? Sales books. <laughs> <laughs> that it does. It sells books. It, to me, the, the 10th Legion is not a book, really. It's an explanation of t- turkey hunters. It's, it's, a, it's, an ex- it's an explanation of a thought process, yeah. absolutely. It is. Yeah. It is. And it's, it's called the 10th Legion because you felt like... Of Caesar's 10th. Yeah, Caesar's 10th Legion and the, the, members, the members of the turkey hunting army are... That's right. Are, That's right. Are, uh, you have said, like, exhibit dogged determination, mm-hmm. much like the army... Of yeah, the tenth, Caesar's yeah, 10th yeah, Legion. Yeah. And that's why that's yeah, titled so. Yeah. And they are a hell of a lot of people with exactly those thought processes. That's right. Or there wouldn't be that many folks in the National Wild Turkey Federation. <laughs> well, I remember when you said when you began hunting, there was only, you know, you, you remember writing this book and thinking maybe 150 people in the world might care. Yeah, because I, 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 when I figured, I, I, I can't remember what I paid the guy to write it, it seemed. Uh, uh, Theo Gosen Sons in, in, in New York. And it seems to me I did 500 copies. And I think I paid him $1,450 or some such thing as that. And I figured it, 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 uh, there'd be at least some guys I knew that didn't know I could read and write. They'd buy one out of curiosity. And they would be, and, and, and if he quit right there. I would probably have gotten my money back, and if not, then I had a lifetime supply of Christmas presents. <laughs> Turned out to be a little bit more than that. Good, good deal better than that. Good deal. <laughs> well, I think many like many people regard it as not only just it's it's about people, right? Oh yeah, it's, it's about, about people. People. It's not a. Yeah, it's I not about. I don't t- write about tickets. I write about people and yeah. what they do in one specific line. Yeah. yeah. So it's not tips and tactics. If anybody hasn't read it, shame on you. But if you haven't, it's not. You're not going to get the tips and tactics. There's some in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah plenty and, in there. Yeah, a lot of people going to read and say, well, "What the fuck this guy's talking about?" <laughs> well, there's there is a thing you said that many people who hunt turkeys do so with an attention to detail, a regard for strategy, tactics, and operations, and disregard for personal comfort. Inconvenient that ranks second only to war. Yeah, to sit out there and freeze your butt off in the cold rain, you know, hoping a turkey might come. You got to be a little bit twisted. <laughs> I'm pretty twisted. Yeah, okay. Welcome to the lodge. <laughs> you still you still believe at the age of 93 you have, have that same passion? I mean, you, you, oh, yeah. it's, it's in not, you. It, it's it's not, never going to leave. It ain't a bit of chain. Ain't a bit of chain. Never going to leave. I, 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 uh, uh, the, um, I've already accepted an invitation or two to go hunt next year. 
I mean, you can you can sit in that damn thing right there. Oh yeah. You can fold that up and put it in the back of a pickup truck, dude. And somebody can take me out in the woods to where they would want gobble and dump me off and say, "I'll come back and get you at nine thirty. And I can yeah. hunt. I can hunt up and down the road. Ah, it's like a, yeah. I can to point to a little walker over there. You can yeah, sit right I, in that I thing. I can. You no, know, I can get out. I can walk. I walk. I walk probably now a mile a day. Really? I walk the phone the, the, the calls. Here. Down and back and yeah. down and back and down and back. I got an exercise lady that comes by, and uh, I, she comes three days a week and, and does things like uh, breathing exercises and balance exercises and all this kind of stuff. She's real good. Uh, I got to get me one of those. She's an English woman. <laughs> she is. a matter of fact, she, uh, yeah, she, she, she has just been home to England. I oh. mean, just been home to England, got children. And and does this as a living. So you're uh, you're you're gonna it, get around. Yeah, so I and I get around great. I mean, uh, and you know, to get out there to to be able to now I don't drive. Uh, I sold my car. Yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, 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 but and it was better. It was I didn't really want to leave home, but my wife did not realize she was dying and really expected to. to to be at home and then with her gone and my daughter worried about how I was doing and what I was doing and when I was doing it it was just more comfortable for her to me move up here yeah where she she can drive here in 30 minutes and find find out what I'm doing and 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 make sure I'm taking my keep track and doing all these keep you from mischief yeah right well, you be, you got a little furniture. You're building furniture up here in this 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 apartment. No, no, most of this I built before I got here. I yeah. I can do some stuff here, and I've done a little. Uh, not much since I've been here, but I can. And as soon as I get through with with my with my saws and hammers and things over there that I got, I can I can go back. I I got a chair I need cane, and I'll cane that chair first, and then I'll go back to doing it. But between writing and reading and caning chairs, and uh, I stay pretty busy. You are busy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to just want to, like, uh, in my head as, I, as I'm turkey hunting, you are the narrator. Like, you, when I'm turkey hunting, I've read your book so many times that some of the things that you've written become and the turkey's coming in i'm mm-hmm. thinking about mm-hmm. the words of that book and i think that's probably true for a lot of people so i i i have i have people say that to me all the time well you know you never know what another guy's thinking but i, I mean, enough people have said the same thing enough people well enough people at the uh at the convention when i'm sitting there a lot of folks will buy books, and uh, we we sell books. And we have a we have a booth every year. Yeah. David Clark and I together have a booth. We sell books, and I sign books and talk to kids. And a lot of people, a lot of people want me to to they take a picture of a kid sitting on my knee, <laughs> or they take a picture of me holding a kid. And 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 uh, 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 I I think I, I don't know. I think maybe they think if they do it. And if they talk about it, and if they meet me, uh, I think I think it forms a society, mm. and I think that's why they do it. Yeah, because God knows I ain't pretty. <laughs> 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 <You know? laughs> 
Well, you've been working with that that uh, lady that comes and gets you the fitness, yeah, you know, yeah, you're yeah, pretty surprised. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, 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 I think I it's true. I never have known why a woman marries who she marries anyway, you know. I, I, I don't want my wife to figure that out either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I do think that one of the things that is important to me is that when you have an idea or like an appreciation for something, and someone else is able to articulate or explain your feeling for that thing in a way that you never could, which is what you were able to do for so mm-hmm. many people for turkey mm-hmm. hunting. I feel like it develops some a relationship. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, because yeah. a lot of folks, a lot of folks when I sign stuff on, will want me to put something on there about this and that and this and that and this and that and this and that. And you can't really, I mean... If a guy comes in and it's fine, it's right, Tom Kelly, or best wishes, or, or good luck next year, but if he if he wants a, a, an intellectual dissertation of why he and I think alike, I can't write that. <laughs> you know, I just can't do it. Yeah, because I think people end up kind and of... And a lot of folks will want that. I mean, yeah. they'll do this and they'll do that, and they want something for their son, and then they'll want something for the other son, and they want me to say one thing for one son, and, <laughs> and some of them pull out a piece of paper and start reading what they want me to write. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, do you, do you, did you ever foresee that you would be signing books and that people would think of you in the way that some do? No. <laughs> uh, I, I felt like, well, you know, I, I, it's like I said, I, I went into it with no sense of with no sense of anything. I, I like it, and I like to tell people what I like to do. Mm-hmm. Well, when you when you go to a football game, you got a you got a special team that you like to win because you remember Bart Starr, you remember yeah. uh, the Green Bay Packers back when they used to be the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> so, Tom, that you feel, what do you what do you think? You say your wife really is is one of the main reasons why you started writing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How? What did she think about your your success and fame? She, my wife, worked for the FBI, hmm. and uh, uh, well, when I when I got out of school, my wife was born in a sawmill town. Born in a sawmill town. Her daddy worked for the sawmill. And her daddy, his name was Leon Bosley, and he was one of those kind of guys that everybody liked him. There was no way not to like Leon Bosley. I don't give a damn who you were. <laughs> there was no way not to like Leon Bosley. For instance, he was. I was. Uh, uh, we, Helen was. She was up there teaching school, and and uh, at the at the. High school in Century, which is just across the line, just it's in the Florida Panhandle, and it's just across the line from Alabama. She was up there teaching school, and I went to work up there for the sawmill, and we met, and we started dating, and then uh, she, uh, when uh, she knew I was, she knew I was, she knew I was connected. My connection with the with the service, mm. and that and when the Korean War started, that I was going to have to go back. But she she left Century and went to work for the FBI at Mobile as a as a as a secretary at the FBI, 
and uh, we we got along great. We we got along great. I I, I cannot remember ever having a crossword with her hmm. from the time I met her until the day she died. Not one time. Wow. And that's that's. That's unusual. <laughs> That's unusual. And I was not, and this was in the days when, you know, without the cell phones, when you'd leave working scattered over the area that I was scattered over, when we, when, as I got up, we moved back to a town that was just about a mile and a half from the town she was brought up in. Mm. So she was there. She had a mother and her sister was still there. But uh, it was, uh, you go. You you went out in the woods in the morning, and and she might. And as late as I, as far as I had to go, and as much as I had to do, it might be seven thirty or eight o'clock or eight thirty before I got back. Never anything. Never, never. It was just as smooth as silk. All never of that. Plain. That's as smooth. Did she ever hunt with you? Once or twice, and she she went, and she said, "This is fine." But from now on out, if anybody asks me what I like to go tuck you on, I would tell them thank you, but I've already been. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I have similar. Yeah, similar that's thing. amazing. Separation of church and state, I yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't out chasing girls or getting drunk <laughs> or, or losing money or wrecking cars. And as long as I did that and brought home enough of a paycheck to feed her and the kid, <laughs> it was, that was it. That was it. Um, I, I want to just read some of your, like, some of the quotes from 10th Legion and right. just talk through some of them with you because I think it, I've been wanting to do that for a long time since I first read your book. Um, I think to the, to the title, there's a quote in there that says, while fall hunting is all about beauty, spring hunting is war. Mm-hmm. Spring hunting, well, spring hunting, you're trying to kill him. Fall hunting is you, 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 uh, you, you know, the woods, the woods in the fall, that's when the woods are pretty. Yeah. I mean, the, the leaves are colored, the, 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 the bird migration is on, uh, uh, everything out there is, is bright and colorful. It ain't hot anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a lovely place to be if you don't do anything but go out there and wander around. Uh, I used to, when I, even after, even after I, was working even after I was managing that track of timber for the sawmill. I, I carried lunch with me, mm-hmm. and uh, there would be, it would be a lot of places that I would deliberately not eat lunch until I got close enough to go eat lunch there, because there was just something in the, in the, around the, in the world that soothed you, and it made you feel at home. It made yes. you feel comfortable. It just. Uh, 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 it's a, you become at one with the woods, and uh, it would have, it would have been to me, it would have been pretty grim to to go to a restaurant every day to eat lunch, or go to the lunch room every day to eat lunch. Or, you know, you, you did that when you were there, but yeah. uh, when when you were on your own, and there was there was there were three four places. There was a place. On the other side of the Atmore Prison Farm, it was, it was rolling terrain, great big damn timber. And uh, uh, a lot of poles, a lot of piling, a lot of saw logs, a lot of everything. And I'd 
a lot of times make arrangements to be close enough to eat where I could go there and eat. There was a couple of places in Choctaw County the same way, up on up on some high. Choctaw County changes from the flatlands to the to the the combination of upland and, and bottomland with a hell of a lot more hardwood. And there were places up there that were just comforting to be in. And then the fact that in those kind of places that were comforting to be in with all that variety of timber, there were more turkeys. Did you, did you feel along your life that there was a medicinal quality to, to turkey hunting? Like it, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, uh, well, well, a lot of folks, it's just, did I kill 16 or did I kill six? With me, it's a hell of a lot more than that. It's always been a hell of a lot more than that. Always been a hell of a lot more. And it, I, I, I often have this, especially in the ice, the, the ice machine. Yeah, let <laughs> you know it's working. <laughs> yeah, every time you got ice, you know yeah. it. I, I think uh, in the springtime when I go out, it's like you spent you're inside all winter or you're you're mostly inside if you ski or you ice fish yeah, or whatever yeah, you can yeah. get out um uh, spring is just like it's new it's new and then any any build up of anxiety or stress you might have had during the winter months when you couldn't get out as much yeah, yeah. can be erased during that time yes sir uh you experienced that through your your life i imagine all right, let's see what else we got here. The bird possesses a remarkable ability to turn arrogance into hopelessness, mm-hmm. which we've kind of covered. But You think I got his ass now, and you get out there and lap. Lap. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. We, talk, we talked about uh, my friend Stephen Ranella talks about how it is that we return to that arrogance having been beaten so many times. Well, yeah, but, well, of course, uh, there, there'll be areas where nobody, I don't, there's some, there some books that, that uh, show the normal turkey ranges, and, in, 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 and it might cover a whole section and a half, uh, 1,000 acres, mm. 1,500 acres. And they they will range across that fifteen hundred acres fairly regularly. They'll they'll handle one part of it in the spring, and when the hens are nesting, and they'll do another part of it when, uh, well, when 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 the acorns get ripe, they they would not be ripe uh, at one time of the year or another. And they and they and and they cover that area pretty pretty comfortably. And and I think it's a uh, you get it to me working. Working in the woods and being in the woods, especially when I was balking timber for the sawmill, the lower coastal plain is dull because hmm. you got pine and nothing but pine, and you got mucky bottomed hardwood bottoms and nothing but that. You get a little bit north of there, and you begin to get this absolute tremendous variety of species, tremendous variety of timber types, tremendous variety of different areas that a that a that a turkey or any other animal will work in and it's just a an, it, it's just more fun up there than it is down in the flatwoods yeah it is it is i think i've in my life when i think about turkey hunting 
and I try to think of you say that your friend Jim Andrews could just think of how a turkey thinks. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the skill I'm developing. I feel like that's you probably are. You probably are. Well, it's like the one I want to develop at yeah. least. You, know? you probably are. If I can think where he wants to be, yeah, or think yeah. where yeah. he's going. Or Ain't no sense in going there because I never see anything over there. But if I go over here, I see him all the time. I'm going there every going damn time. And I, I recently moved to the moved to the west where you have these big expanses of public land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where you this year I did it a couple times where you roll into a place you know you don't know anything about the landscape, anything about the the birds, and well, course, find see, a bird the, and kill the it. The thing is now it's so easy to find out. Yeah, you got you got to you got the resource planning hack. Which cruised every acre in the United States is recruised every ten years. Mm-hmm. You got maps. You got you got you got Google. You can call up a map. You can call up a map on Google. I could call. I can call up a map. You can call up a map on Google, and you can see. And, and and they update the damn thing all along. And if your car is parked in your front yard, they can see it, it sees the car. Yeah. That does see. You can goddamn near read the license tag. Yeah, we have a, a mapping system now on your phone. Yeah, you can, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. see. It's called Onyx. You yeah. can see pretty much. You can look at a ridge. You can see the topographical features. Absolutely. You know, like absolutely. You go, oh, a turkey would definitely go there. And then yeah. You go and yeah. you find it. Yeah. And maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. But you do have a leg up. Yeah. That's for sure. This is probably, I don't know, of all the quotes I like, this is maybe my favorite. You have to pay for every bird you kill. And the coin you use to pay for them is time. Time. Right. Time. Right. You cannot hurry. You can't say, I got 30 minutes, I'm going to run out to section 14 and kill a turkey and run right back. <laughs> you can't say to your wife, okay, Thanksgiving's coming and the in-laws are coming down here, I'll, I'll kill a turkey this afternoon and drop it off in the yard <laughs> so you can be cooking it tomorrow when they get here. No schedules. You can't do it. You can't. No schedules. Another one you said is you don't hunt turkeys because you want to. Yeah, you hunt turkeys you have to. because you have to. You ain't got no choice. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine a man that's been doing it for 80 years. Yeah, he's, right. He's pretty stuck. He ain't got no choice. Here's another one. You, when you, you, this is a long one, but when you talk about what happens when you're a turkey hunter and how you explain it to other people, you say, he also knows that when he comes back at home empty-handed, as he will do regularly, he will have no satisfactory explanation. He is well aware, for he has met dozens of them, of the numbers of people that will approach him on street corners and in bars and at parties who will open each conversation with, well, did you get him? (laughs) When he answers no, they will be off and running. They will tell him in delighted tones and in the clearest detail the story of a friend of theirs who has a feeble-minded nephew (laughs) <laughs> right of how this nephew is occasionally allowed home on leave from the state funny farm yeah. how that the last time this poor defective creature was home week before the last he went out in the woods just behind the house sat on a log with a turkey yelper that was given away as a souvenir by a typewriter company in 1937 yelped twice and killed a turkey that weighed 23 pounds that's right picked. <laughs> that's right <laughs> The it's explanation of it—it's all in it, and that that story right it there is going to happen. Yeah, and it it explains why it's so magical because you can never ever, you never master it. You can never get good you at never, it. Never you you will never get good at it. You can get good at it, 
No. But you will never master it. That's right. You will never master it. And every time you feel you have the mastery. That's right. That, that and, crazy and, and, and dinosaur and will. You you think, how in the hell could I have been so goddamn dumb? <laughs> but you are. <laughs> <laughs> you really and truly are. <laughs> Another one. My This is the one that I'll close with because I think this is the one that most people, it's at the end of the 10th Legion and I think it, it, it really encapsulates everything perfectly. The first turkey that ever came to me on the ground did it a long time ago. I sat there with my hands shaking, my breath short, my hand, heart hammering so hard I could not understand why he could not hear it. The last turkey that came to me last spring had exactly the same effect. Yeah. And the day that this does not happen to me is the day that I quit. I don't think I'll quit. I, I think that will be the day that they close the lid of the coffin. <laughs> That that final thump, <laughs> the one you won't hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you've done this for so long. You've you've put so much into it. You know, it defines a lot of your professional and personal life. Well, and, and then and then of course, God knows, I've gotten some money back. Yeah, that's that's the marvelous thing. And I didn't get into it. I didn't sit down and say, I believe I'll start writing about turkeys and make a pile of money. <laughs> Colonel Kelly, do you. Is there something you would say to turkey hunters of the future kind of about your experience as a turkey hunter and what you've been able to do? We need we need to we need to work well, I don't know I don't know how you could do it, but we, you we need to because we are really and truly losing turkey hunters, we're losing hunters every year. Every year, every state I think shows a diminution in the number of licenses that they put. and there's a pile of things. Cruelty to animals. Uh, why do you shoot those poor little innocent things? Why this? Why that? Why that? Why do you take all that trouble? Why don't you spend home and we spend some time at home with your kids instead of running up and down the goddamn road? Uh, that, that we've got to get, I think, it, 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 we may can do it in time, but we got to get the world to understand that there are different kind of hobbies and your hobby is simply one of thousands and thousands and thousands of hobbies. Uh, and, and then the fact that you can eat what you is, is, a, is an added thing. It is. But that we, we got, we got to, if we don't do that, uh, well, it ain't going to be, I don't know how long it's going to be, but we could come to the point where, well, like uh, for instance, now I think in Australia, you can't own a weapon of any kind. Now, there's places in this country where, yeah, you know, yeah. they're you I mean, restricted they, they, heavily. They've taken they've taken all deadly weapons away from anybody except pocket knives and stuff like that. But they 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 they're getting it where, and and, and the more variety, it, the, the 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 strata needs to be. Not like this. It needs to be that thick, where you can play in any in any part of it you want to play, yeah. and stay out of jail. <laughs> right about that. I think the last question I have for you is: If you could speak to, say, the last turkey you'll ever kill, and you could have a conversation with that turkey, what would you what would you say? I wish there was one more behind you. <laughs> I wish you wasn't the last one. I guess I grew up on an older road.
All right, that was Colonel Tom Kelly, legend in the outdoor space. He's on the 40th anniversary edition of the 10th Legion. So go buy the 10th Legion. Go read it and remember this good man. Oh, he's not dead, but remember him anyway. Remember his work. (laughs) I can't get to talk about old people like they're dead. That's not true. Tom's still alive and kicking. I talked to him not long ago. And so, you know, he might get out in the woods this season even. And maybe I'll take him. Hopefully I can hook up and and get him out in the woods for turkeys. Let him hit a box call and call one in for us. That'd be great. So that's one of my life goals. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth but we're gonna get on to the next one the next one was was it pp this was pp right phil you were around for valerius geist yes it, i was around you were in the room right when he mm-hmm. when we did the recording valerius, yeah. valerius geist um talk about presence phil talk about a man that comes in a room and commands a presence yeah, and it's not like he's boisterous or anything. He just has kind of this uh, this air about him. Everything from what he wore to how he spoke mm-hmm. to how he told a story. I remember he walked in the room uh, here in the main area of the meat eater offices, and immediately everybody was just drawn to him. Moths to the flame, as it were. People started to realize who that was. And this is you know, a pretty unique place where everybody might know who that guy is, but... After we aired this podcast, I realized not a lot of people knew who Valerius Geist was. 
And that's pretty sad because Valerius Geist is one of the most important figures of our time in hunting. So that for me, it felt like an honor to sit down with him. But after we recorded and I saw all of your reaction, I felt even more lucky to help bring this man to you. His story, his story of life. And much like Jim Posowitz cried during his episode, Tom Kelly cried during his episode, <laughs> and Valerius Geist cried a little bit during his episode. And it was about, a, he was talking about a, a pet moose when he cried. A little strange, but I liked it. So the, a lot of these guys are are telling stories of their past, and I think that's another kind of through line for this best of. These guys are, are reliving their past, talking about their great works, and enjoying what a story can do for all you listeners. And so we're going to get to Another one of my favorite podcasts of all time. Definitely one of my favorite people. And a really, a really, really life-changing conversation that I had with Dr. Valerius Geist. Enjoy. I guess I grew up on an older road. There's no way to really transition to the North American model from this conversation, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so this is what I spent two winters yeah. in the Spazzisi studying stone sheep and mountain goats. And, uh, uh, of course, caribou and moose and everything else. But I had studied moose before that, and moose is one of my favorites. Yeah. It's a great, great You fun. speak with high regard about moose. Oh, I, I mean, do. I think you... Oh, I love them. Of all the things that we've talked about thus far, I, like your... Oh, I love them. Your love of moose is... I absolutely is, do. It's very apparent. Well, uh, they are all... Uh, Tay moose are incredible. Incredible animals. You see, if my, my book, Deer of the World... I wrote quite extensively about moose, and because I'm a German, I was able to get the experience from Europe uh, into the English language. And there was quite a bit of, you see, the moose was quite a cultural animal in Europe. Uh, For instance, in Sweden, it was used for postal service in winter. Yeah, I was going to say that. And it was, an attempt was made by one of the Swedish kings to put a whole regiment of dragoons on top of moose because they make a super superlative, and I mean it, a superlative mount. Yeah. And had that succeeded, I can just see this miracle weapon because when horses for the first time confront moose, they see a ghost and they spook. So if that cavalry regiment of dragoons would have run into another, there would have been horses scattered from here up and down. I'm picturing this. That's right. But it failed because moose are very fickle in feeding. And that's the difficulty. They make a fantastic mount. Really? So fantastic. Really? Yes. Throughout history, this, yes. this, is, this is common this throughout history. This is history. I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, putting anything onto you. No, no. I don't think you are, but I just, and, I'm in, very excited about this idea. In, in Russia, yeah, um, when the um, conquests of Siberia began, they, f- they discovered that anybody mounted on moose could outrun the Cossacks. Because the moose will run much faster and much more uh, better over uh, uneven terrain. Yeah. Now, if you take a tame moose and train him to carry a pack, you put on the pack, and the Russians have done that, by the way. They packed these moose with very delicate instruments because that moose will carry that pack without a slightest movement of anything through swamp. He will sw- swim through raging rivers with that. He will crawl underneath deadfalls. He will slither over top of deadfalls. In the evening, he will deliver you that pack undisturbed. 
Tame moose. The tame moose. That's how, right. How do they tame these? How, oh, what's the... so easy. <laughs> oh, they're such babies. Some of the cute things. Oh, they're they're, they're wonderful. <laughs> they're very very. Cu- they're very curious. Yeah. Yeah. They're very sweet. Yeah. And they follow you around and about. They, and they are. Have, You're oh, right. They are sweet, and they have such a lovely sound. You just make a few. <laughs> they can. Yeah. So, for instance, one baby moose. It was a little bull had learned that with muddy feet, he can't get into the house. So he would call, lift his legs, wait till they were cleaned, and then he went in and let down, sat down beside the fireplace. That was sort of the typical thing. They're uh, very curious. Yeah. They will follow you around. They put their big nose into everything that you have, and so on and so forth. And to give you some examples, um, a forester raised one female, and she loved to go hunting. Love to go hunting with him. If she heard a gun going off in the distance, she would take off. And the <laughs> foresters in East Germany were very surprised how accurate she could track with her nose. Yeah, they said she's as good as the best tracking dog. A blood track moose. Yeah. Oh yeah, they they can track. I'm losing it. Yeah, this is the best. Oh God! Now it gets even better. Yes, because this forester. <laughs> um, so when he took the shotgun, the moose was right there. And they went out. But moose also have the habit, and they don't kick that habit, of suddenly up and they're gone for a little walk. 135 miles away. I mean, something like that, yeah. So the moose was gone for a while, and the forester happened to be in a boat in one of the canals, and he's pulling down. And suddenly, there the moose shows up, and the moose recognizes the forester. That's mother. And she jumps, turns over the boat. There you are. <laughs> Uh, I could listen to moose stories uh, like this that one, all day. Well, you got this more? one, this one, yeah, this one's a bit tragic. Because, one, one last one. Uh, it's a bit tragic because um, she was a pest. No two ways about it. And when the forester was transferred to another district, a quite long distance away, they thought the moose would stay. She didn't. She found them over a long distance, and they decided at this point, no, we do not want you. Now you remember that every moose experienced that in its lifetime. There comes a point when there's a calf, the yeah. female says, yeah. no more. No more, yep. And that moose understood. And what happened next brings tears to my eyes. Uh, she appeared frequently at night, standing underneath the window. Oh. You see? Yeah. <laughs> then we're both crying, man. Yeah, yes. I, I, I'm still moved by that. Uh, this is what moose are. They are like a six-foot dog. Yeah? yeah, They're sweet. Absolutely sweet. Oh, they make wonderful mounts. and oh, Even the biggest bulls. Yeah? Yeah. Even during the rut, yeah, it's a bit awkward at that time. You know? But then I see pictures of a nice bull moose with antlers flared being tame around the house and the three-year-old kid being placed on his back and he runs around. I feel, do you feel with moose, these are, with, with every animal that can be labeled as gregarious? Or... Well, I'll tell you the following. <clears throat> when, by the time I finished in Banff National Park with my bighorns, the females physically tried to keep me in the group. Physically. Blocked my way. Deliberately pushed me back in. And so, when I broke, they tried to follow me and they followed me everywhere. And the males attacked me. Some people might ask, given your relationship to, to you've studied goats, you've studied mountain goats, you've studied wild sheep, you've studied moose, you've studied wolves, deer. That's right. deer. 
how you still could be a hunter? No, I would not ask that, but some easy. might. How do you answer that question? How easy. can you still kill a moose knowing that it brings you to tears? <laughs> Think well, of the, the point. One. The point of the matter is, um, hunting is uh, provisioning. You bring in food. Yes, I will keep the antlers of a moose that I kill. It's a treasured mem memoir of one. I have no difficulties there. That is food, and the only obligation I have is to kill that animal as quickly as possible. Yeah. That's my only obligation in this regard. And the other obligation is not to waste. Uh, That's like overwhelmingly pragmatic well, in the face I'll, of emotion. The first deer that I killed was a mule deer doe. I brought back, of course, grandma and I were great pals, to say the very least. She took the head and she made head cheese out of it. Now, how many people will take the head of a mule deer and make head cheese out of it? Not many. Not many. It's delicious head cheese. To this day, when I kill a buck, and I've, I do all the cutting myself and so on, the last thing that I do is I skin the head and I carefully, with a very, very sharp scalpel, remove the edible meat, and that makes a magnificent stew. Magnificent. It's one of the best tasting stews you can have. It's only once a year or twice a year, <laughs> depending how many uh, bucks I kill. Yes. Now I kill one or two bucks a year. That's that's it. Or nothing. Depends on the, the circumstances. But, and I don't waste the bones. The bones are so wonderful in stock. In fact, I'm almost fanatical about bone stock. I uh, boil two big pots of bone stock a week. Uh, for it. The first thing I'll do when I get home is I'll be doing just that, bone stock. Now, of course, you add a few more things like chicken feet, chicken uh, gizzards and so on. Pig foot is a good thing so that you have a very gelatinous result. Of, of course, gin, um, um, turmeric and, uh, well, uh, oh, all, uh, all other goodies uh, into it as well. But usually, there are three species of animals and seven, eight species of plants which go into my stock. Yeah, such. It's very, very healthy, and it has kept me free of, um, for especially colds and influences. For, for I haven't year. had a cold now for three years. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, good would, stuff. That, that's that's kind of. Let's talk about kind of the ethos of of our company and what we do, and the reason I joined this. Yes, and I'm in Bozeman, and that we we're sitting here is very much what you're talking about the the idea that we can be pragmatic but yes. also feel an emotion for this animal be pragmatic uh, in the now, taking of it we can go a step further yes <clears throat> uh, you are aware that i'm writing my second book on human evolution yes so one of the things that i'm very much aware of is that we have biochemical pathways which evolved only because we ate meat the first biochemical pathway, for instance, is will digest the digestion of elastin, which is found in muscle fibers and only in animals. And you and I share the same enzyme, elastase, which digests it. That tells you something, yeah? The one that I really like, <laughs> <laughs> the one that I really like are the trans fats. Well, if you take trans fats in margarine or trans fats in oils, they are awful. They're very, very bad for your health. Never eat the bloody things. But take a peek at what you find in milk or in cheese or in butter. There are trans fats in cheese, in butter, and in milk. Do you know where they come from? From natural hydrogenation in the rumen of the cow or the sheep or whatever it is. And you know what your body does with them? You have an enzyme specifically 
to pick up those trans fats and change them into conjugated linoleic acid, which you need for brain development. Now that tells me that we've been eating the fat of ruminants for a very, very long time. And you need, hey, uh, you need, by the way, meat very much for brain development. That cannot be overstated. And we've talked about that here on this podcast uh, with the Professor William Von Hippel down in Queensland. We talked about human evolutionary biology and, and oh, the yeah. kind of philosophy of. Okay. And not only are those pathways created through that, but our, <clears throat> our social structure, how we communicate with each other, how we set up our societies oh, yeah. was often driven by. No, no, hunting was vitally, vitally important right from the outset in human evolution. The moment we became humans, we were killers. We were such efficient killers that we dramatically changed the biodiversity of Africa and continued to chase, uh, yeah. to change it. I've written a whole chapter on that. I'm going to read it. Let's get to it. We got to get to before we go here, the North American model sure. of wildlife conservation. Because I would, I would say that I believe most people will know your name from that. Uh, in the, in, in the sense of our audience and then just in the general sense, because yes. it is, in my mind, the most important set of principles mm -hmm. that we have in wildlife and, and conservation and in any model mm -hmm. across the world, right. which you have vast experience. Mm -hmm. North American model is... Yeah, it's it, a superlative it it. model and it is a real wonderful creation of North American society. It is a gift, a cultural gift to the it world. Is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now... Yeah. When you, we have, we've had, we've, dis, we've heard from Shane here. He called us earlier. We've had Shane on this podcast before to talk about the origins of Correct. the North American model, his role in marketing mm -hmm. it for lack God of a better thanks. term. God thanks. Without Shane, it, we, it wouldn't have flown. Yeah, what a voice he was. Yeah, yes, he was. In the, also, John Organ was another one of them. For those, those people, it would have failed because I was condemned when I first uh, published that model. Not, yeah. When I first published the comprehensive model, the um, Wildlife Society wouldn't review the book. Yeah, they took you know, Shane and other and uh, took them on the road and went. Mm -hmm. you know, they did basically That's conference right. to conference. That's right. They did to talk yeah. about these yeah. things. Yeah. I am in debt forever for that. Yeah. So let's talk about the you know the origins of of the model, where yeah. it came from, and then and get to some of the hardships you had pushing it forward. Well, uh, let me put it this way: I was interest, interested. Uh, in the early, early 19, in the 1960s and 70s about um, how to make wildlife um, well, pay for itself, or that's a bad way of putting it, but how do I make wildlife more valuable? And uh, in my innocence in those days, I thought that maybe game farming would be a way to go, and I had, God thanks, a bit of money, and I organized a conference in 1971 where game farmers from South Africa, from Texas, from Alberta, and various places, England and so on, came, and where we had a wonderful set of papers and discussions, and that was published by the IUCN in two volumes, and I was the editor, and Fritz Walter, my dear friend, was the editor as well. And as I was editing this, I suddenly realized, oh, my God, to push that is an absolute idiocy in North America because what it does, it would destroy your system of wildlife conservation. Now, you do 
didn't know that you have a system of wildlife conservation. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Like, we and, weren't aware and, that that system existed. In fact, uh, the, the stimulus to write it down came from a discussion I had with two senior colleagues of the Canadian Wildlife Service. They were pushing game farming, and I said to them, for heaven's sake, what are you doing? Don't you realize that you're destroying your system of wildlife conservation? And they both shot back to me, we have no system of wildlife conservation. I said, you damn right you have one. I'll write it down for you. <laughs> Take a break. We need to take a brief moment to think about that statement. And this is after many of the, like the key legislation of our time that that built our model. That's right. In other words, what I did was I summarized that existing model. The genius behind the model is not I. It's yeah. you. Yeah. Not me. Well, no, it has been, uh, <clears throat> you see, all the principles of that model have gone through the hard school of democratic debate. They survived. Yeah. There is not a person in this world who has the wisdom to construct that model. No. It well, could only have happened culturally over time. Yeah. yeah and you reverse, and if you reverse time, and, and listeners of this podcast will, will know we talk about this often, you reverse time, you, you think about in 1936 and 37, the first National Wildlife Conference, Franklin so D. Roosevelt. Pieces, that's right. Bits came together. and pieces of that's this right. come that's together. Right. The Lacey Act. That's right. But no American could have written that model. Yeah. No. Your Americans who wrote about that had a totally different thing. And you can look at Aldo Leopold's book, Game Management, yeah, and mm. take a look at Larry Hahn's, uh, Jan's um, introduction where he speaks about this. It's a totally different way of looking at it, yeah? Well, I was, I'm a European, as you know, and the, I was very familiar with the um, hunting, very deeply familiar with the hunting in, in Europe. And... Um, when I wrote that model, basically, when I started it, I uh, s contrasted it, um, what you do in North America comparing what you do in uh, Europe, yeah, and wrote that down. So, for instance, you have the wildlife, large wildlife, largely, except for fur, in the, well, in fur also in the public domain. Well, you don't have that in Europe. Although, by law, it should be, the reality is, Wildlife is privately controlled. Yeah, so it was one step after the other, and I first wrote uh, out a model with four steps. Then I thought about it, and eventually I developed it to seven steps, which are found in my book, which I published in 1995 with Ian McTaggart Cowan, together. And there I had the most detailed, in some regards, it still is one of the most detailed accounts of the North American system of wildlife conservation. It had, by the way, a uh, review of chronic wasting disease. It had a review of the tuberculosis outbreaks in there. And this is, you know, generated by your, your work looking That's at right. game farms. That's right. That's right. That's right. Because uh, most of your uh, chronic wasting disease basically is spread by game farms. Yes. Was, somebody said in the United States nicely, CWD is spread by trucks. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> but, well, and when you codify this model right. in a way, the fact that it's driven by like – your study, you know, your studies in game farms and then Well, I published CWG 22 and, papers yeah. on it. So, and the very last one, that by that time was quite accepted, I presented at an international conference in Ireland because one of the, the gentlemen who invited me had studied and he said, this is the best model we know in the world and why don't you uh, expound on it? And I emphasized there its role in public health. Because most of the human diseases we have come from wildlife or tame animals or domestic animals, yeah? And the best thing you can do from a perspective of public health, the best thing we could have ever done is to keep all our wildlife wild. 
not in the, that's where CWG comes from, yes. you see? Yes. And today, we are faced with an enormous dilemma. And in 1995, no one was talking about CWD. Well, I had the first uh, you, review of that. Yes. You can read it. Which I have, at, at the behest of Shane Mahoney. Yes. You're talking about you predicting. When you read it, you're like, well, this this is 10, 15 years before right. this thing had proliferated. Right. And here are here is someone calling to, to bear what CWD can become. That was 1995. Yeah. I first warned about the disease in 1991 in my book, El Country, page 169. Please read. I will. In those days, the disease was not even known as chronic wasting disease. It was called some kind of a scrapie. Yeah. See? And I had done my homework on the German side. See, that is the advantage of having another language at times, yeah? The Germans had been very much concerned with the TSEs. I realized, oh, my God, what is coming our way? And I warned in that. <laughs> I was told later on that a game farmer who loved my writing came to that spot, read it, burst out into red face and ripped the book apart. <laughs> Too bad. Yeah, I mean, TSEs is yeah. something that TSEs. we now very much understand. Mm -hmm. But, it, but I'm, it, you know, having in 1995, I was but eight years old. Mm -hmm. But, or no, 10 years old, whatever. But... <laughs> To, to think that back that far that these kind of things bore the, you know, for you to codify that, that model came from an understanding of game farms, understanding of, oh, of yeah. disease like CWD, oh, yes. and then this is what's driving this, mm -hmm. is incredibly, it, it's remarkable to me. But at the same it time, it was so futile, you see, <clears throat> yes. because we still... Uh, have not controlled the the CWD prions are spreading, spreading, and uh, the dangers are so acute to our economy because Norway has already banned all products from straw and hay from areas with contaminated with CWD to enter Norway. So that's your a big hint with a telephone pole. Yeah. Believe you me. That's gonna. That's, that's gonna. That's gonna be a spider web. That's going to be something. Yeah, and. <clears throat> Uh, basically, you have to blame now the politicians. They were very well informed. But, of course, game farmers thought, oh, forget this stupid professor. We know better. You know, that always happens. Always. And there's, there's you know, CWD funding mechanisms in, in I know, in appropriation in Congress right now that are sitting in committee that probably likely will not get out. And this well, is just asking <clears throat> for more funding to do research. Well, and that's the wrong thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. We don't need any more research right now. We need action. We need implementing policies. And I have written that. I'm the chief author, in fact, on a policy document uh, which we produce, which, by the way, your leading scientists acknowledged, agreed with, cooperated with us. They realized what we were doing. When you write a policy document, you write it in, you spread out the understanding that you have uh, and feed in the understanding from various places so that you can come out with several principles. What do you have to do to stop the disease? And the first one is that you stop uh, the transport of all animals and parts and so on. And that means, like, like it or not, the commercial side. Yeah. See? Yeah. And you almost, have to. That's yeah. the first step. And that's, I think that's something where within the hunting community, it's accepted that this is something that we should do. The hunting do. community is coming along. That's right. But you had, you must, in other words, we have so much knowledge and had it for decades that we should have acted then. Yeah. And I am horrified at the potential consequences of this. Yeah. 
but I'm sorry. I was not able to convince then people and they threatened me in court and threatened my wife with death and God knows what else. Well, let's see. I don't want to go over too many of these types of things, but you had, there was a lot of pushback to the North American model when you first presented it. Correct. And I think it's important to examine that pushback to kind of, in its place and time, why it happened. Well, it, it was based on misunderstanding. The misunderstanding that arose was because I spoke of this model of wildlife being in the public domain, uh, this was considered to be politically socialism. And they accused me of, um, of that. Well, of course, I am a great fan of courageous wildlife and, and environmental action on private land. In fact, one of the great things about North America, your country, is that we do have a large amount of land in private hand outside the uh, public domain because on these lands, we have some of the most brilliant examples of what to do in order to rectify problems on public land. Yeah. You see? Yep. I am enthusiastic about this. I am a great defender of, of private property precisely because here we can have actions that mitigate, we can learn so much. In the value it creates. It's I mean, there's tremendous value. Recent I'm not studies. against private. Yeah. I want the opposite. I'm yeah. enthusiastically in favor of it. And at the time, when you read, when you read like wildlife as a public trust resource, elimination of markets for game, these are things that a capitalist probably not digging too much. Well, you see, don't accuse the capitalists. Most capitalists have a brain. If I have a chance to talk to the capitalist why we should have no markets in game, when he sees the consequences of having illegal markets, like the wonderful work by Terry Gross, who used to be your, in the West, your head honcho in wildlife, with the um, uh, wildlife service in wildlife law enforcement. And he was very much involved in getting the Ashland Laboratory uh, up and running. A great man. In his retirement, he wrote fantastic. Fantastic books. I mean it. And each chapter dealt with an episode. And there you learn just how big an underground of illegal activities you have. No capitalist that I can think who had a brain would disagree. Yeah. Do you remember any any moments of where you hardly had to defend the model that you felt were, were seminal? Oh, they, they, were, they were cute. Really, <laughs> cute, really cute. cute. <laughs> uh, one of the most outrageous <laughs> things that happened was in Texas. My friend Fritz Walter, very, very dear friend, he was an ethologist, the great antelope expert, uh, retired at Texas A&M, and the students put on a very nice seminar for him. And they asked me to be the keynote speaker. Fritz Walter and I were close friends for decades. Yeah, and I don't hear anything anymore. And one day I think it's getting close now to that. Let's give them a call. And I called, and the poor student said, "Doctor Guys, we were told that if we would invite you, <clears throat> all our conference funding would be taken away." Oh boy. Well, I called Fritz and said, and he said, look, if you don't come, I won't come. So I came. And I gave one of the most innocent papers I've ever given in my lifetime. I explained the reason why the Irish elk had these enormous antlers. We were in a... Uh, auditorium in a high school, I think it was, 
And uh, that in itself is an interesting thing why Irish elk evolved these enormous antlers. Oh, yes. Yeah. And as I was going off the stage, out of the curtain, stepped a Texan colleagues, grab hold of my hand, says, well, we're all with you, but I cannot be seen with you. <laughs> You're an anti-hero. Well, uh, today I'm a hero in Texas because uh, I also published how to um, grow uh, trophy antlers, how it was done in Europe, <clears throat> because I knew that intimately for a long time. And some Texas ranchers in the south of Texas read it, thought it was very sensible, tried it, and of course it looks like a charm. <laughs> we should we should get into this story. We can't leave this on the table. Because it, it involves Herman Gehring. <laughs> involves the Nazis. So take us take us into the take us into this one. Well uh, yeah that's right. But first of all I was tell will tell you the following. Um, these ranchers are using the thought patterns and so on, not from the past, but also from our own and from our own observations. And um, the result is the ranch that I've seen, it's beautiful natural vegetation, magnificent deer growing on it. In one week, I saw three bucks that would break the world, the uh, record it would enter the record book of Boone Crockett Club. And if you in your lifetime see one, you've been kissed by the gods. I saw three in one week. And uh, right now, you have all over the United States, the score, Boone Crockett Club scores of uh, whitetail antlers dropping, except on those Texas ranches. They're going up and up, and they will go up, I know, because we're now discussing things and we're introducing other measures and uh, you have wonderfully healthy populations yeah and this is all because of a buck to doe ratio not quite not quite it is it's, it's a little bit more than that it is really the first the first thing is that you condition the landscape in such a fashion that you have rich rich food all the time you must make sure you get big big farms growing, yeah? Good mothers, good does. You have to reduce the density and you have to look after the landscape to make it rich and productive. That's number one. Number two is you eliminate <clears throat> some of the things that are poor performers that you take out. And the next thing is that you don't kill your big breeding bucks. What the Germans did was, and that became law, when they realized that you could um, they um, um, they had a system of class one and class two. The class one and class two were split into A and B. Class one A were the trophy stags that were breeders. You never touched them. They were off limits. You could only kill one uh, B, or under certain circumstances, a harvest stag was allowed. That's one A. Then you could never kill a two A. That was a tag for the future. You could kill a 2B. When I was last hunting in Wyoming for elk, I had the chance to shoot a young bull with enormously long, thin antlers. I wouldn't hang such a thing on my wall. I would turn around in shame. That bull had a future. He had to live. And of course, I didn't shoot him. And his progeny had to live as well. Pardon me? His, his children well, had to live as well. In other words, yes, he, this was a bull that had not yet bred, yeah? but he was a big, big, magnificent bull. Yeah? But he was a satellite bull. He was not even with a rutting group. Yeah? He was just entering it. That's not an animal you kill. That's an animal you allow to live. 
I killed a bull 10 minutes later, <laughs> who I was so happy to have. It was an old bull. It was a grass antlet bull. See, this means something to me. This means almost nothing to most people. To me, this was the joy of joys. See, grass antlet bulls live during the antler growing period on sedges and grasses, which are very, which are, which have no toxins in it. Yeah. And that means that he was living on some of the better grasslands created by the forest fires that you had. Yeah. He was hog, hog fat, but he didn't have a mane, shortage of protein. The antlers were relatively short, and because there were no toxins in that food, they were perfectly symmetrical. And that's the sign of a grass antlered bull. I have it on hanging on my wall now. Mm. That's what I wanted. I got it. <clears throat> we had to wait for 15 minutes for the sun to rise before I could take the photograph. It was that quick. See, I called the, the bull in, but uh, that's another big story because uh, <laughs> the um, German counts in the 1980s and the great hunters um, found themselves in a the dilemma. They couldn't hunt the magnificent stags of the um, Carpathian Mountains or the Danube Delta because in the thickets, the animals were invisible. And you could hunt and pussyfoot as much as you wanted to. You'd never see them. you never kill them. But... These were noblemen, educated people, which were wonderful authors, yeah. They began to understand that if I play bull successfully, I can walk in on that thing or it will run you over, as a matter of fact. And that's exactly what happens. Now, these writings are marvelous. I internalized them early on. When I had a chance to try it out on elk, it worked like a charm. <laughs> it is you have I'm, to watch out that you realize that you kill the bull in the thicket you go into the thicket and the greatest fun of all is if you convince the females that you are a beautiful stranger and they break away from the harem and they run towards you <laughs> and the harem good hitting bull is behind them yes it's fun I never thought we'd get elk tips out of this podcast but I am <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much enjoying that elk tip. Well, I mean, I got so, we could do this for, gosh. I knew it was going to be like this. I knew I was going to say nothing and, and be speechless a lot and um, want another five hours with you. Uh, I think we must return to, to the North American model for a second. Please do. Because it's hard for me to explain its importance. And it, it's not something that is ingrained enough in, in our hunting public right now. Correct. It is not, when you buy a license, it is not listed mm -hmm. as part of your, mm -hmm. uh, as part of the game laws. Right. It's not, it's not right there. I mean, people that listen to this podcast will, will know a lot about it. Certainly there's a lot of uh, resources and you've, you're working on some now with Shane uh, to learn more about it. But why do you feel, because it's, it's such an astounding, long-lasting model, mm -hmm. even before you mm -hmm. codified it, mm -hmm. Why do you believe that it's not, you know, you don't get your game regulations book in Montana or Wyoming. Why is it not on the back cover? <clears throat> Actually, that's a very good question, and I cannot answer that. Uh, I do know that it is being um, written up. Occasionally, it is being rewritten incorrectly, by the way, yeah. to uh, 
fulfill secret wishes in part. But uh, it is something that I feel school children should know about because it returned life and biodiversity and beauty to your land. And that is what wildlife management should be all about. It's a hands-on way of generating more diversity rather than less diversity. Huh? If you let the wolves go through the landscape, you will suffer tremendous loss yeah. in biodiversity. If you, on the other hand, play God, and you have to, that is your responsibility today in landscape because there are no la natural landscapes in North America. There haven't been for 12,000 years. Yeah. Your landscapes are artifacts of human the, activity. The way you put that is striking, that, these, that you're looking at an artifact that has right. been manipulated, will continue to be manipulated. That's right. And it was manipulated very, very cleverly up to the time of um, the discovery of North America by the Europeans, you mm. see, because when they entered, they never realized that they were entering a highly, highly civilized landscape, by which I mean that the landscapes had been manipulated in favor of human wants and needs and conditions, yeah. They were artifacts that served humanity, and those people that entered had not a clue about it. And now we do. What a lesson to learn from that model and from you is that you must understand your place and time. Like mm -hmm. you must understand when you look at a landscape That's how right. it got to be that way. That's right. There's no way you can understand being in, right. in it, That's right. being a part of it if That's you don't right. understand how it got to be but the way it let's was. Go, uh, if you follow our unfortunately now misguided environmentalism, yeah, you're going to create forest fire conditions like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. A, na a landscape of natural biodiversity, which has the large mammals in it, yeah, is an open landscape in which the annual production of plant material is largely consumed. When the forest fires occur, they're small, they're cool. You don't have these enormous conflagrations that you now have. Yeah? So you see, when human beings came to this continent about fifteen to 17,000 years ago, they came into a continent that was hit hard by about 60 genera of large mammals. And they hit the continent so hard that the vegetation, most of the continent, was so low that you evolved here, like the pronghorn antelope, a species of animal that is the highest speed runner in the world. You can only evolve high speed running in wide open landscapes. Yeah, The Texas deer that I talked about, a fantails, a Texas whitetail, and the Texas whitetail is a deer that evolved in open landscapes. And its orbits yeah, are shaped in such a fashion that they would have been able to click up very simply. Because in those days, you had enormous predatory and uh, carrion feeding birds around. Yeah? Uh, uh, same thing with uh, golden eagles. Golden eagles will kill deer and prong on antelope. Of course, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so this was an open country species which had eyes. Your Texas whitetail has eyes as big as a bighorn sheep, yeah? And it was able to. So you had a wide open landscape. When people came and were confronted by these mega carnivores, these huge bears, lions, and so on, they began burning the landscape where they could burn it, and then they settled there because on burnt landscape, they were safe from the predators. And by the way, they lived a miserable life for 1,500 years. After that, they developed a miracle weapon, which was the um, 
Well, which was a sharp cutting blade mounted on a detachable uh, spear. You put poison on it, very severe poison. They were killing mammoth on the spot uh, several uh, at a time. They were very, very, very severe. That's the Clovis culture. Yeah? Yes. Also, the Heskett culture is another one that uh, they be- produced unbelievable cutting tools. The Heskett culture is thin, long knives that were obviously drenched in um, poison, most likely aconitum, and that were used. Uh, later on, you had the Folsom culture, which was also uh, something very similar to the Clovis and the fishtail culture in South America. And by the way, with these miracle weapons, they killed out the large fauna within 500 years completely. But you know what happens now? The vegetation grows and you have conflagrations. You have huge fires. You have to counter burn. You have to learn how to bl- handle vegetation so it's safe for you. And the North American Indians and the South American Indians became greatest experts. And so they burnt in order to make the vegetation subservient to human needs. They became some of the greatest horticulturists and great agriculturists. These were bright, bright people that were doing this. Yeah, And by the time Columbus came to North America, you had a continent completely under human control. It was civilized but it was also overpopulated. And wildlife was very, very, very scarce. The reason you had so much more wildlife was, of course, the great tragedy. Because already in 1539, with the DeSoto expedition, uh, they brought diseases, and they began to spread diseases instantly. And native people became aware of it very, very quickly. And they fled just to get away from any contact with these Europeans. Imagine driving 500 pigs in front of you. That's what DeSoto was doing. Because the preceding expedition in um, 1527 by Cabeza de Vaca, who was second in command, and he reported back, one of the problems they had was getting enough food in the first expedition. People were dying of hunger. So the second expedition thought they were going to fulfilled that, they had 500 pigs moving along with them at any one time. And they spread their diseases like you wouldn't believe it. The minimum is that 56 million American natives died. The more likely figure is that 120 million died. And wildlife exploded as a consequence. Buffalo, the real beginning is about 1635. And the maximum extent they reached about 1775, certainly in Pennsylvania, that is, then they began to shrink already. Yeah. But the maximum, this is the image of the landscape full of wildlife, full of buffalo, full of passenger pigeons, is a consequence of the death of North American natives by the millions. Hmm. So, for instance, the passenger pigeon, <clears throat> you had, the best explanation is that once the uh, nut gardens, the fruit trees, and everything else. Well, your eastern hardwood forest is a nut garden. Yeah, Once they became available, the pigeons got into it, and your g- genetics tells us that this was a very rapid expansion, and they expanded into the billions. And so basically, what was the biomass that once walked as native people on Earth became passenger pigeons in the sky? Horrible. Yeah. Yeah, passenger pigeons is one of those those species that everybody 
capital. I understand. But you see, the passenger pigeon was a rare bird yeah. at the time Columbus landed in North America. It's a rare bird in the food um, archaeological sites. Yeah, very, very rare bird. If it had been as common as that, it would have been everywhere. No, it wasn't. But understanding it, these ebbs and flows is, is but at you the see, core of understanding that's our right. world. That's right. And uh, it gets even better because one of the papers thinks that the release on the vegetation that happened was so massive that because in other words, the natives had suppressed it, it was so massive that it, it sucked out a lot of CO2 out of the air and caused the little ice age. That's not my theory. That's one theory I cannot defend or explain, but this is one theory out there. Yeah, It could very well be true. Sure. They were trying to make the point that this was, in fact, the first example of man-caused climatic change. Nothing to fool around with with Little Ice Age. <laughs> the understatement. <laughs> I'd say of the century, but longer than that. That's right. Of a millennia. That's right. But you see, you should read, because it's so funny, the... Uh, uh, Alvarez Nunez Cabeza de Vaca was a nobleman and a Spanish uh, officer, very successful. And he was a falconer. And the emperor that he reported to, uh, Charles V, was a passionate falconer and a hunter. And so, of course, the emperor was interested in what he saw naturally. Huh? Now, Cabeza de Vaca begins in Florida, goes all the way to eight years to Mexico. He doesn't see a single alligator. He doesn't see a single coyote or wolf. He doesn't see any grizzly bear. He knows about black bear and puma. He doesn't see any. They sees no elk. He sees no javelina. When the natives in Florida, it describes, when hunting deer, they took along water and wood because where there was water and wood, there were no deer. Can you imagine as a hunter what that means? How rare deer were? Yet Cabeza de Vaca says there are three kinds of deer in Florida, and he's 100% correct. They still are there. Yes. Three different deer, white tails, yeah? That's how keen an observer he was, you see? So he now describes for the benefit of the king all the huntable birds, uh, like the blue heron, the egrets, and so on and so forth. But he doesn't mention the eagle once. With a huge population of people on the land, Every eagle has its feathers torn out. He doesn't see a single eagle. He doesn't see a single vulture. Well, if you have deer in such small populations and only deer and nothing else, yeah, when you don't find a single turkey in Florida, it's the DeSoto expedition that meets the first turkey in Louisiana. Yeah. That was the continent you looked at. It was very, very well used by people. And that matches the archaeological yeah. data. Go ahead. And these vast changes over vast time. Vast changes, that right. disease that, that's right. that then sweeps over this that, that's right. continent. That's right. Changes but you see, things. for 12,000 years, people changed the continent till the Europeans came. And then in rapid-fire fashion, you whiplashed the whole continent. There is no natural ecosystem anywhere left in North America because of that. Sobering. To wrap up on the on the North American model, does it need to change? <sighs> well, for the next ask 50 you, uh, years? You ask a good question. Um, 
I think what you've been doing in the past is good, and it would continue as long as you accept socially that wildlife can be in the service of human beings, that it can be consumed, that it is a product and a harvest of the land. As long as you have that, and as long as you think that it's right and proper to treat everybody uh, in, a de in our democracy as an equal, hmm. so that every citizen who is no longer not a criminal, etc., can get wildlife for their own use, it will remain and retain. Yeah. Sustainable use of natural resources. And as long as you have wildlife, your second amendment will stay. But if you lose your wildlife, it isn't worth the paper it's written on. Well, I'm trying to gather the words to <laughs> sum summarize our time together okay. here. I, I feel... Um, I feel like I want you to come back, number one. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm coming to you. Yes, uh, you can. We should, I should. Do you realize that the uh, Germans have sent the TV crews to film me? Yeah. Because I'm taking such strong stands on the wolf issue in yes. Europe, yeah? Yes. Oh, they're they publishing my that. stuff all the time. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm coming to you. And we're going to hunt. We're going to go hunting. Absolutely. I, I, I want to thank you for a life that was dedicated to, to these ideas, to, to pursuing them, to articulating them and for coming here and doing both of those things because I think this is an incredibly important conversation. I think your ideas are generation, not only important for, for your generation, but for every single one that comes after it. So um, I don't think thank you is quite enough, but that's all I have for right now. But thank you, and thank you for this opportunity. No. I loved it. Thank all you. Right. Thank you. That's it. That's all. Episode 96 in the books. Thank you to Jim... Colonel Tom and Valerius for gracing us with your presence on the podcast. Those are three gentlemen I never thought I'd get to sit down with and uh, put those in a time capsule for myself and hopefully for you to go back and listen to if you ever need a little inspiration of what you might want to do with your career or with your life outdoors. Uh, so thank you for, again, sticking through all four volumes of THC's Best Of. Uh, we're going to get back to the regular show, Phil. Are you excited about that? Huh? I'm excited to see what you have planned. Yeah, you don't even know yet, do you? No. I've been, um, I had a whole Word document full of guest ideas and topic ideas and segment ideas and all these crazy things for 2020. You know, this, this we joked that we were, uh, we were just the substitute teacher putting the movie on. But while, while we were taking a bit of a break from our normal show, we we're getting down to work. On 2020, we want to bring you the best podcast possibly can bring you. So in the meantime, hit us up on iTunes, wherever you listen. Give us a five-star review and a good written review. That really helps the show. Um, and do anything else you can to let people know about what we do here at THC. In the meantime, we'll be working our asses off to make it better for you, make it entertaining, make it informational. So we'll see you in the brand new year in 2020. Next week. Bye. Here too long, cause I can't go a week without doing wrong. Oh, without doing wrong. Without doing wrong. Oh, without doing wrong. Drinking in heaven.
You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 